This morning we're going to talk about leadership in the church. And I, I've realised I don't think the whole time I've, we've been here as Mary Creek, I've never spoken on this topic. Um, yet it's one that's so important to us. We spend a lot of time reading about it and thinking about it. In our lives, we think about leadership. We think about why can't my boss notice me at work? We think about... Um, you know, if our footy team just changed its coach, it might, we might have a chance of winning the premiership in 2018. We think, should I be a class parent this year and organise the social events? Or will people not really follow my leadership in this? We think, could I become a CEO one day? How high should I aim in my workplace? Um, we think, have I got what it takes to start a small business and to employ staff? These are the kinds of leadership questions we face all the time. And in Australia, we've got a bit of an issue. It's, it's not just Australia. It's Australia, Europe, the Western Anglo world with the tall poppy syndrome. So we've got a bit of an issue with um, leadership. I think there's a theory, Max Weber has the sociologist, that um, there's only so much uh, prestige that can go around. So if someone has a bit too much in their corner, we cut their heads off so that it can be spread evenly again. Maybe that's how it works. So we put our, all our hope in Kevin Rudd in 2007, and then a few, two years later, he's like got the worst ratings ever, and uh, it gets kicked out. Or we get a new boss, and the company staff feel really excited for a few months until the new boss changes the um, strategy and re re a f re you know, sacks a few staff and, um, you know, and... Uh, uh, changes the logo and suddenly we don't like them anymore. Or churches get a new minister and it's like the Messiah has arrived and the Sunday attendance goes up for a few months and then the minister delivers a bad sermon and changes the time of the morning service and suddenly the minister is enemy number one. These are the kind of issues we have with leadership, isn't it? And leadership is, it is actually an important theme though for us in the Bible while we might have issues as Australians with leadership, yet it is important. We see lots of stories of important leaders like Abraham and Moses and Joseph and David and Daniel. We see examples of flawed leaders like King Saul and most of the kings of Israel. Uh, we read about Jesus as the greatest leader, uh, one who perfect, perfectly demonstrates um, sacrificial leadership. We see Jesus choosing other leaders like Peter and Paul. And we actually learn that leadership is really important in the Bible. I mean, it says in the Proverbs, be sure you know the condition of your flocks, give careful attention to your herds. The writer to the Hebrews says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. John the Baptist showed us, you know, the way where to relate to Jesus, talking um, of, of Jesus, John said, he must become greater and I must become lower or less. And Jesus affirmed this idea by saying, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. James 3 verse 1 says, a warning, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that he who, we who teach will be judged more strictly. So Bible has an awful lot to say about leadership. And actually, it's woven into our Christian faith. So 
If you are a Christian, you come to our church, Mary Creek Anglican, you will find yourself in a leadership context where um, we'll invite you to lead something. Um, so you might uh, be asked to be on the, somebody might nominate you to be on the church council or be a warden, or you might lead the morning tea team on one particular Sunday, or you might lead the kids upstairs, people leading right now upstairs. And I actually think one of the incidental benefits of being a Christian is you learn leadership. It, it's kind of like you learn a lot about music that's why you always win Australian Idol, the Christians. And you learn a lot about leadership too. One year um, when I was on staff at St Hilary's with the Youth and Young Adults Congregation, there was one year level, I remember, where there were three school captains. We had the captain of Kerry, the captain of Strathcona, and the captain of PLC, all in the one year level in our youth group. And I think it's partly because at church you'll learn leadership and you also develop good character, hopefully. And then in your wider life, people see you and the kids at school vote for you to become the school captain. So being a Christian is, is partly about leadership and the Bible has a lot to say about it. And today, today as we begin our three-week series on the book of Titus, which is one you may not have looked at closely before, um, we see a lot about in this chapter about leaders. Um, this is one of Paul's pastoral letters. Um, it goes with 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, the other pastoral epistles. And it's called this because both Timothy and Titus were like pastors or they were overseers of church, churches. They had pastoral responsibilities. They weren't necessarily pastors like you, maybe, maybe you think of me. They were more like um, bishops in a way, like people who, there were lots of little churches and they roamed around them in a certain area. Um, and so Titus had this pastoral oversight on um, the island of Crete in Greece. And I think there might be even a map of Crete in the booklet somewhere on page something or other. You can flick through if you get bored with the sermon. So I've got a few things to say about um, from this passage about leadership. So let's have a look. Then the first idea is this, which is pretty obvious from the passage. Church leaders should have a really high stand, standard of godliness. So the churches in Crete were um, struggling to make an impact on the culture around them. Um, the Cretan culture around them. And in fact, the, part of the, one of the main reasons is that they'd become so blended in uh, to the culture of Crete by just adopting the Cretan values and culture and morality that you couldn't tell the difference between the church and the society. And the leaders were just as bad as the, um, as the hedonistic um, wider society. And this was affecting the whole church. Because what's good for the leadership is good for the congregation. If the leaders are acting a certain way, the congregation are going to follow. So this church is not making it, these churches are not making an impact. And so Paul's letter to Titus, which is actually an open letter, when you get to the end of the whole um, letter, you see that it's to be read out loud to the whole church. It's actually written to get things back on track. And it starts, the letter starts off with Paul's credentials, because it's really written with the authority of the great apostle Paul through his uh, co-worker, Titus. He says, I, Paul, am a servant or a slave, is the word, of God and an apostle. Um, so Titus is walking in with this letter. Uh, this is not, this isn't, these are not my ideas, guys. This is Paul telling us this. Um, and, and Paul gives us the, um, the purpose of, of his ministry, uh, which is, uh, he says, the knowledge of God's elect and the truth that leads to godliness. In other words, what Paul's on about and what this letter kind of has woven through it is evangelism and teaching. Um, 
the knowledge of God's elect and the truth that leads to godliness, saving faith and saving knowledge. Um, the elect may come to faith and they might grow in the knowledge that leads to godliness. Uh, this is a great summary of Paul's ministry, that, that the elect may come to faith and that they might grow in the knowledge that leads to godliness. It shows the purpose of the Christian life. It's not just about learning stuff. It's not, you don't come to church on Sunday. It's not, this is not school. I mean, it is a school, but, you know. Um, it's actually to have a transformed life. This, this is life transformation, what we do here at church, and that's what Paul's on about. It is to be morally changed, to become a godly person. It is to go from being in the muck of sin to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Spirit and in the joy of the righteous life, which is a lifelong process. So Titus is working in Crete as Paul's apostolically delegated authority. He's there to sort out the doctrine issues. He's there to sort out the leaders on Paul's behalf. And who is Titus? He doesn't appear in the book of Acts, which is a bit strange because he's so closely tied to Paul. Um, but we see from this letter already that he's kind of like Paul's spiritual son. Um, you know, Paul loved him so much and probably mentored him. Uh, that he describes um, Titus, my true son, in our common faith in verse 4. Um, and I've seen this with people in ministry. Um, I actually had um, one of my mentors say to me once, about eight or nine years ago, I remember I was taken by surprise. He said, you're like my son. And I was like, whoa, it's a pretty huge thing to say. Um, and... That is what happens in ministry when you're working really closely, especially with an older and a younger relationship. But he's also, Paul describes Titus as his spiritual companion. Um, so they're almost like colleagues, you know. Um, he says that in, uh, in his uh, letter to 2 Corinthians 2 verse 13, he talks about how close he was to Titus. You know, if, you, if you've ministered with people in, in, in a team over a long period of time, you grow so close. And he's, Paul says that he's, Titus is his co-worker in 2 Corinthians 8. So, so this is why he's trusted Titus to do this work. And in uh, verses 5 to 9 of Titus, uh, Paul addresses this issue of the leadership in Crete. And he says to go to one of, each one of these house churches and sort out who really should be the elders and the overseers. Work out who are the godly people because they've got some dodgy brothers in leadership. This is the reason I left you in Crete, Paul says in verse 5, to appoint elders in every town. Now, Paul writes about these elders and these overseers, and we don't really know what they, that really means. Like, I mean, we've got a vague idea that they had eldership and oversight in the church, but we don't get a, like a full-on job description. Um, we don't really know a lot about the difference between elder and overseer. It looks like overseer is probably a little bit more important than elder, um, and we know that they're pastorally responsible for Christians in a, in a church. And there's not a really one-to-one -one direct comparison between then and now. Like, I guess you could probably think of it as the overseas a bit similar to the staff in a church, the ones who, whose responsibility is to oversee the whole lot. And maybe the elders are like the church council and the wardens and maybe the community group leaders, people who have significant responsibility in the, of leadership in the church. And in Crete and in the early church, these elders and overseers were usually chosen um, from fa a family household context and usually the, the leaders of the house, usually the fathers, 
remembering that these houses included big families. So everyone had got married and had children much younger. So you would have um, you know, a patriarch over the whole house and his wife and his kids and their kids and the servants and their families. So we're talking about big houses here. And they were like a church. They became churches. So when you needed leadership for the church, the obvious person in that cultural setting was the father. So that's why there's lots of references to the, the fathers um, in, the, in this passage. But one of the problems the early church faced, especially these churches in Crete, was they were mostly new converts. So I don't know, uh, you know there, are, there are places in the world, especially you see this in India, where there's a form of church planting that literally, and it's happening now, I've met planters who do this, Indian church planters, and they're growing like wildfire, like 10,000 churches planted you know, each year and stuff. And the planting method is like this. You know, I go to Anthea and Andrea and I say, hello, do you know Jesus? And they say, no, and let me tell you about Jesus. And they become a Christian. And then I give them a Bible and a little mat. And um, they, that's their church web, you know, you know, tools for starting a church. And maybe I'll give them communion stuff if that's your flavor. And then they'll go to the next person and they'll say, do you know about Jesus? And then they'll gather a few people around them. And suddenly these churches start like this quickly, quickly, bang, 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 bang. There's no buildings. They just sit around on a mat. That is their church. There might be 10 or 15 people in it. And um, the thing is, they're brand new converts. Um, and so this is kind of a high-risk kind of but very fast and rapid-growing method of church planting. And thousands and millions of Indian people um, in their kind of rural areas are becoming Christians every year as a result of this. And this is kind of what was happening in the early church. You know, don't think the kind of method of church planting we have today, which is long, lengthy and sort of, you know, using lots of money and um, buildings. It wasn't like that. And so you, you did get leadership that had strange ideas and that weren't morally developed and, and, and um, hadn't grown in godliness and had strange teaching. And that's what they had in Crete. And Paul says that what you want are godly leaders, he says to Titus. You want godly elders and overseers. And this is essentially the main point of the chapter. And he lists a series of virtues, virtues that they must embrace and vices that they must let go of. And this is a very similar list to the ones that he gives in 1 Timothy 3. And he's basically saying you need to find godly people. Uh, for virtues, uh, Paul, for an elder, Paul says in verse 6 that they must be blameless. He doesn't mean sinless because, you know, um, Paul admits that nobody, not even he, is sinless apart from Jesus. Rather, he means blameless in his home life. He has to be faithful to his wife or it could be that he has one wife, you know. Don't, don't choose an elder who's like having an affair or don't choose an elder who's like a womanizer, you know. Um, look at his family life. Do his children believe? Um, have they followed his dad in their faith or are they just like completely rebellious and, 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 uh, and he hasn't got any control over his little children? Um, and for virtues, for the overseer, Paul writes in verse 7 and 8, Again, blameless, not overbearing. Hospitable, are they good at welcoming people in or, or are they kind of ex, you know, excluding people? Do they love what is good? Are they self-controlled? Do they have sound doctrine? Do they have you know, good theology? Do they believe in the gospel? It says in verse 9, in the gospel of Jesus, sound doctrine. And for vices for the overseer, 
they don't wanna, you don't want to have a bad temper or, or a drunk person or a, a violent person or not terrible with money. These are just obvious things. They're just, you know, what you would expect to see in a church leader. Um, I don't think you, you know, in a sense they're prescriptive. In another sense they're not prescriptive. You, you know, um, we're not to be too literal with this. Um, Titus should not choose for the Cretan churches elders and overseers that are violent or drunk. I mean, this is obvious. But what about like faithful to his wife? I mean, you could misread that and say that the elder has to be married. And children who believe and are well behaved, you could misread this and think the elders have to have children. Um, He's obviously not saying that because Paul himself didn't have a wife or children. Jesus did not have a wife or children. And if Jesus couldn't qualify for an elder or overseer, obviously we've got a problem here. Um, Paul is saying if you can't lead your earthly house, how can you lead God's house? He says in verse 7. So elders and overseers of churches need to have a reference check, basically. You need to find out how they conduct their lives. We can't have church leaders who are not godly. This would be a disaster. It would have a terrible flow and effect for the whole church. They won't have a chance of making any kind of mission impact in Crete if the church is corrupted like this with ungodliness. The way these leaders are going to behave is going to affect everyone. These churches won't have a chance. Now, we can actually add more if we wanted to. This is a, you know, let's think about it. I mean, we could probably say elders and overseers, they probably should be emotionally intelligent too. We don't want people who are just like abusing people and defensive all the time. They should be generous with their finances. They should be reliable and come to meetings on time. If they say they're going to appear for a, you know, a meeting and, or, or a ministry job and then they just don't appear because you know, they send a text message at the last second, sorry, I forgot, I'm not coming today. We don't want those kind of leaders. They should put the needs of others above their own. They, they should not gossip. They should be trustworthy with people's secrets. Surely this is not too much to ask of our leaders, of you and of me. There's nothing more damaging to our reputation as the church and more damaging internally for us if we have leaders, both the staff and, and the congregation leaders, who have bad character and who are ungodly. So if you take up leadership in our church, you will sign a code of conduct next year. There's a, there's a new code of conduct we're introducing that the council, church council has been working on about how you relate to children and vulnerable people. And this is something the whole of Anglicans in the whole of Australia are, are implementing as part of the Royal Commission. And I will expect you to fulfill your task reliably and with honour and integrity and keep to that code of conduct. I'll expect you to put in effort and to treat people fairly. And I know you expect the same of me. And this is so important because if I, if I lead with integrity and you lead with integrity, this will all help to make our church uh, a healthy, a safe place. And it will also maximise our effectiveness as a church. It will maximise our mission effectiveness. People will see us and they'll say, wow, this community loves each other. They've got so much integrity. They're sacrificial and they will be drawn to us. The church in Crete 
had elders and overseers that did the opposite. They were not living with integrity, and so they had a big problem. And, and, and Paul says they should be rebuked. Verse 10, there are many rebellious people. They were spreading false teaching. There was a group, the circumcision group, who were probably promoting that you had to be circum- the men had to be circumcised. And this was a problem in lots of the churches because of the hangover from Judaism. And, um, and they were probably teaching other things as well. But Paul's main focus is not actually on the false teaching. He does mention it. It's really on their character because it begins with their character. Um, and he, and he, you know, he quotes one of the, the, the famous um, teachers or um, prophets from, they call, he calls him a prophet from um, Crete, that said this famous line from a poem, Cretans, Cretans, or we call them Cretans now, are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, verse 12. He's shaming them. These guys are so bad. Epimedes wrote that. And Paul is trying to expose the Cretan leadership. This is their Harvey Weinstein and their Kevin Spacey moment. You know, we're going to expose you guys for who you really are and start afresh. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him, verse 16. So what are we saying? We're saying that all leaders, you and me, we all need to live godly lives. Everyone from the staff, the church council, the morning tea roster people, we need to lead godly lives. The people who do the prayers, the people in the band, because... We do it out of obedience to God, and we do it for mission effectiveness. Now, secondly, there is an issue, and the issue is this. It's that you and me, we are all sinners. Paul is not talking about perfectionism. Remember that Paul described himself as the worst of sinners, 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. He says to the Philippians that all of the good works that he does, everything, preaching, starting new churches, it's all but rubbish compared to Christ. If God expected sinlessness for leaders, then there would be nobody in leadership. Young ministers in training often ask me, um, you know, what's the hardest thing about being a minister in a church? And I say, well, there's lots of hard things about being a minister in a church. There's the weekly work-related pressures, like there's the, you know, coming up with a church service each week and a sermon each week, and then the pastoral care of the congregation and the conflict that can occur within the people in the congregation, people with different expectations. Um, you know, there's uh, governance, compliance. Uh, you need to have people skills and upfront skills. You even need to understand how to use a sound desk. You know, um, there's so much graphic design these days. You're gonna need, you, there's so many areas that ministry people have to be on top of, um, as well as just carrying the burden, the, the pastoral burden of the congregation and the disappointment that you can have in ministry when you go for years and you don't see the fruit that you hope to have, the pressure on your family. But then I say... Actually, all of that isn't really the biggest issue. I think the hardest thing about being a leader in, 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 in ministry and being a minister in a church is the, um, the spiritual pressure. The pressure, which I'm sure is partly self-imposed, to have an active and thriving and rich spiritual life, 
so that you can lead by example, so that you can teach and preach out of your, the f- overflow of your heart, that in your daily life that you resist temptation, that you um, are a leading example to the rest of the church. That is to me the hidden spiritual pressure of ministry that makes it hard. It, it creeps up on you over time. And in my experience, the more that I have time that I've spent teaching others about Jesus and spending time in prayer and reflection, the more God has revealed to me my sin. The sins from my past, the sins from now. It's like his light shines even more brightly and there are things that are dirty spots that I didn't see that I now see. I see it in a new way with a a new kind of horror that I didn't have before. And it might surprise you to hear this. It might surprise you to hear that your minister sins. It shouldn't because you'd be strange if you thought I didn't. But all people wrestle with sin. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins that you commit and sins that you do by not doing something. Every person in ministry is a sinner saved by Jesus Christ. Everyone from the Mary, the mother of Jesus, through to the apostles, St. Augustine of Hippo, Martin Luther, Mother Teresa, me, Beck, all of the people in leadership in our church are sinners saved by Jesus Christ who face our daily temptations and mess up and have to humbly confess our sins and grow in Christ-likeness. See, there's a problem with perfectionism. If we, if we kind of say that for me to be in ministry, I've got to be perfect, it leads to depression and self-loathing because you just never make the standard. Uh, you, you, you tell yourselves you can only, you've got to just be perfect and then you mess up and you, oh, and you think, oh, I'm such a terrible person. It can also lead to judging others. You, you start to create this new set of lists and laws for yourself and others and then you look down on people who can't, you know, st- stand up to your kind of standards. It also leads to being deceived about God. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you've led, led in your life. It doesn't matter how many things you've achieved in your ministry, in your life. You will never be good enough for God. You've got to remember that. Any way we try and impress God with our per- perfection through our own efforts, they all fail and God goes, you're missing the point. We, we are so affected by our sin that we actually can deceive ourselves into thinking that God wants something from us apart from Jesus and his salvation. You know, we cannot be perfect, and we have to remember this. Perfectionism is not the way. We are only made perfect by Jesus Christ. God doesn't require perfection from us. He gives us perfection. It's a curious strategy God has considering the fact that he knows who we really are, that he chooses to use us to build his church. Why would God use me as a minister? God knows how much I sin. I'm broken goods. It's like a a cyclist trying to win the Tour de France with flat tyres or a concert violinist trying to perform Beethoven with a broken string. And this brings me to the third and final point, which is that we need to lead from a position of grace. See, the the dilemma is that Paul's letter to Titus wants us to be perfect, but we don't have the moral ability to be perfect. So we have a problem. God tells us to be righteous, then turns around and says that we cannot be righteous. 
The reality is that we are guilty of sin against a holy God and therefore justly deserve God's wrath. This is the gospel. Yet, the extent to which we agree with this reveals how much the Holy Spirit is actually working in our lives. He's working that grace in us. Reveals how much we are actually converted to him. What I'm not trying to do here is make excuses about leadership in the church. I'm not trying to set up a culture of cheap grace where we can say, oh, well, we're all sinners. It doesn't really matter if we stuff up, if we have integrity or not. I'm not trying to do that. We actually have to learn this thing of living in a a tension of grace where on the one hand we do what Titus 1 is saying, embracing godliness at all cost. And then on the other hand, embracing the gospel, which is that we're completely flawed and the worst sinners in the world, filled with every kind of lust and greed, hatred, and yet are forgiven people, uh, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And we walk in this tension. And it plays itself out in our daily walk as Christians. This is what Paul means when he says, work out your faith in fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you. So work out your faith in fear and trembling. Work out your godliness in fear and trembling. Do what you can. Confess your sins. Try again. Try again. Embrace godliness. For the gospel, it is God who is at work in you. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, you discover that if you lead with your weaknesses and admit your sinfulness, you actually point each other to God. You point each other to Jesus. The world would believe the church a lot more if we led out of our weakness, out of our humility, rather than being morally superior. The people we would lead would be much more likely to follow us and take us seriously if we did this. And one way you can do this is to make regular practice of confessing your sins out loud to another person because it, it puts you in a position of humility to do that. It can be hard. It can be embarrassing at times. But then to receive that forgiveness reminds you over and over again of who you truly, truly are, to have that sober view of yourself. It's painful and it's freeing. And I just want to finish with what do you do if you have a growing sense of sin in your life? What do, you, what do you do if you really have a powerful sense of your own sinfulness? You are a Christian who's been saved and you know the gospel. You know that you're forgiven by what Jesus has done and yet um, you can even have doubt that arises in you about your own salvation. You can wonder, am I really a saved Christian? Has Jesus really forgiven me? I mean, I know the Bible says so but, and I know that it applies to everyone else, but does it apply to me? The sins of, of your past can, you know, haunt you. And we wonder where God is in all of this. And sometimes we, can't even, we don't even feel comforted. We actually feel discomfort. We become worried. We become irritated and wonder how we're feeling guiltier than ever. We can lose our inner peace at different times in our Christian life. If this is you, let me ask you this. Were these sins in you before you began to realise the reality? Yes, they were. You may have remembered them before, but not been concerned or worried about them, and now you remember them and are concerned, and your soul is disturbed. Well, the good news is that 
this might seem strange, but actually this is God's Holy Spirit at work in you. You're actually now finally judging yourself correctly. You're seeing your sins the way God sees your sins. And God is actually showing you beautiful grace. He's actually doing a good thing for you by, by helping you to be horrified at yourself. It doesn't feel good, but it's for your benefit. It's not a sign of grace being removed from you, but a sign of grace being given to you. You're growing in grace. If you notice your sin more, it's because you have more light shining on you, because God has made you more sensitive to it. It's a sign that God has united himself to you and a sign of you thriving as a Christian. And if you were really not a saved Christian, I can guarantee you, you would not be worried about your sin. People who are not saved revel in their sin. You would enjoy your sin. For if God is with you, you'll be more discomforted than ever in the presence of your own sin. And this means that his spirit is doing his work. And you actually might end up thinking you're more terrible than you were before. But this is not the love of sin growing in your heart, but the love of Jesus. You're only judging yourself like this now because God has made you his and jealously desires your heart. And the fact that you finally take notice of these things means that the gospel is at work in you. And additionally, that sin will no longer keep you down into this place, but that, but that Jesus is now freeing you and taking the sin from you. You're growing in maturity of faith. And so you are definitely fit for leadership. It always seems most dark before the sun rises, and that's kind of part of the Christian life, continually realising what you've been saved from. Yes, all of us in church leadership, especially me, needs to pursue godliness and live a godly life. We should not pursue perfectionism because that leads to our ruin, and we must learn to lead out of weakness in humility, knowing that we are saved sinners leading out of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this letter to Titus. And it seems so like strict and moralistic at first reading, but thank you that actually what you're doing is you're showing your standards and how to create a purified church. And we pray that as a church at Mary Creek Anglican, that we can be a church that leads um, from grace, but also that pursues godliness and lives in that tension of grace, the, you know, working out our, fear in, our faith in fear and trembling, knowing that it is you that's working in us. Amen.